I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about uh, metaverse intellectual property and assets and how we use uh, intellectual property to uh, build these these metaverse environments and that we, we wanted to get past platform and into you know who has access to what and, and who's going to create it and we turn that into a how you're going to pay for it because the challenging thing with the metaverse and the way the metaverse is being framed as a platform is it's a lot like the content media wars of streaming platforms today, which is where we started this conversation. And that led us in a really interesting way to payment platforms and transactions. Uh, we've been talking about PCI for conversations before in the warm-up, and, and that, that also bled into this conversation. But it was fascinating that we couldn't talk about intellectual property without also talking about payment and transaction. Something uh, really interesting, a lot of thoughtful stuff in this conversation, and I know you will enjoy it. The issue of scalability, you know, is a big discussion, and I'm sure Klaus has a perspective as well. But I look at it as your validators are your lifeblood in blockchain or storage provisioning if you're Filecoin or whatever, whatever. And setting up those nodes, it's really it's a node, right? I mean, you're running a node, whether it's a validator node or a storage node, you basically need the capability of unlimited scalability, but without sacrificing security or decentralization. So you remember my, uh, my little uh, quippy, you know, nodes and nodems, you know, like little fiefdoms of, uh, of clusters. That's exactly how you scale it. You don't really have to give up the decentralization nor the security, especially if it's data center-like. Mm -hmm. So you could technically keep scaling and scaling and scaling. And there's a lot of companies involved in it. Everybody from, you know, um, uh, cellular from, you know, migrating from IIoT or IoT into this space to, um, data centers that are being set up solely for crypto or NFT because the transaction speed, you need the speed, the scale, and the reliability of high-performance computing to be able to do it. Yes, you can do individual node operation on an ARM or whatever, tiny a Raspberry Pi for efficiency. Yes, you could, but how many of those are you going to need to have to be as local as possible? And you're also going to need it for the metaverse because, you know, self-driving cars need that kind of capability in a very localized situation as well. So there's, there's a lot to it. It's different industries approaching the same problem from different perspectives. But I think the era of decentralization, highly distributed, is uh, upon us. I hope so. Torrents make I, a comeback. <laughs> Torrents making a comeback. Yeah. No, that, they, they are. Uh, I mean, that, most of that is an, an issue with the content providers. Uh, no, no, no longer. Ha uh, like n nowadays, if if you were to get on, on, on each service, uh, on each individual uh, content provider, like Netflix, Disney Plus, Paramount, Hulu, Etc. You end up having your your cost end ends up being equivalent to to being on cable. Now the advantage is still that you get your content on demand, so they're still going for that. But a lot of users are being disillusioned by the fragmentation of con of content. Um, most of the ones that can afford it and end up hopping from one content provider to another. Like they go on Netflix for a couple of months, consume all the content they want, <laughs> then they cancel the Netflix subscription, they, they, they go to Hulu uh, and so on and so forth, and like Amazon Prime, et cetera. 
but other ones who, who just don't don't have the bandwidth or or or, or the, the will to do it, um, I I would not be surprised if they were to go back to to piracy. Well, my biggest disappointment is that CNN Plus is not available in Canada yet. Which really bothers me because as the, you know, so-called streaming service of the future, it should be geographically available everywhere. I wonder why they geographically limited it. I I don't know if it's licensing or content provisioning. You know, Canada has rules about that. But I can't imagine why they continue to promote it so heavily and then not provide the service because I signed up for it immediately and I keep getting that it's not available in your area to which I go, okay, so you want me to just, you know, watch live news, which is a channel, by the way. It is most likely a a, a CanCon issue. Yeah. I, I know the, the Netflix uh, has had to change their content in Canada to, to provide more Canadian content. So if CNN is unable to, to guarantee that, then they, they would not be able to um, provide that service. Yeah, but it, I would agree, except that why can't you get it through cable? To me, it's a licensing play more than more than content, because when I had cable, um, it was part of my package and I switched to streaming almost a year ago. I'm still not 100 percent liking it or used to it, but it's a third of the cost of what I was paying for cable. And I am able to find channels like Live News World that gives me, you know, stuff that I would want that I can't get on Roku or, or any other mm. kind of device. I, we, we had, we had an experience where we were trying to watch. Um, I'm, I'm totally a fair weather fan, but we were trying to watch the um, NCAA tournament. Uh, I'm a dookie and I'm, I'll root for them in the NCAAs, but um, it was actually impossible to uh, stream the, the, the tournament. Um, actually, it was a game before that um, without having a live TV provider included in my service subscription. So like getting ESPN was not a problem, but getting we also had to have a live TV provider to make it to allow the stream to go. Um, hmm. So so this actually ties into the topic of the day, um, I think, in a very direct way, because. So just as a recap, today's topic um, came up as part of our sort of our, our AR VR discussion where we got to this point where even more than the platform, the intellectual property, which I would count all these streaming shows is part of that, is seems like a big part of creating these environments isn't just can I run the environments, but who's providing the content for them. Right. Um, ah, boy. And so, right. What we're discussing from a video perspective, it's like, I, I, there's content that we want to access, but it's restricted based on geo, you know, for you, geo, geo boundaries, geopolitical boundaries. It can be restricted based on some FCC legal requirement that you have a live TV feed in order to access the content. Um, I think for us, and I'm not sure that Klaus will, will agree, um, it's mostly Canadian content provisioning. You know, you have to have a percentage of the content that is made in Canada and um, contains whatever advertising or, or anything like that. But that... I'm not sure what the percentage of content that's Canadian made has to be for any given channel. Would would that potentially show up in a VR metaverse scenario where 
you're you're in a space and there's a geopolitical requirement for access from local average like because I, I could see a, a case where you're in a VR chat you know we could if this was a VR chat um, and you know the platform provider you know for international use could actually say I, I can't have international users because I can't you know uh, deliver you know local ads as part of the background it, or it, it, it depends a lot. So, so one of the things, okay. for example, with, with channels, um, again, the, the, the answer to that is it depends because if you treat this, the channel as being standalone, then yes, you need to have a particular percentage of your content being Canadian. However, if your channel is part of a bundle with other channels, okay. then... My understanding is that it gets averaged over those channels, which I believe is also why you can get CNN as part of your cable package, but not CNN standalone. Um, I could be wrong on that, but that's that's my understanding of it. Uh, as far as the the content provide provision is, like with the AR and stuff, I think it also matters whether you are uh charging for the service or not and whether you are the content producer or a content distributor or whether you're just a a meta site like for example that there's no restriction on reddit for example for canadian canadian users you, you can consume all of the non-canadian content there is and i'm pretty sure it did like it the content on Reddit does not meet the 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 CanCon requirements. However, there's no charge for using it either. Uh, so it's an open platform. So again, the answer that largely depends on whether it's a whether you it's a regulated platform or not. Sure, but I mean, I guess when we're bringing up metaverse topics and where things are going, those are <laughs> not going to be regulated anytime soon. Um, and a lot of the cases, this, this stuff is regulated because we had to keep people from stepping on each other from a frequency perspective. It, it doesn't look like any, anybody's worried about two metaverse providers. And this is where this topic came from. So there's nothing that's going to stop us from having a dozen metaverse providers, right? Um, and a lot of this, like my understanding of the streaming services is a lot of the streaming services are using the same underlying platform. They're, you know, they're not writing their own streaming platforms anymore. Um, that's, there's a, I don't, I don't remember the name of the company, but there's, there's a company behind the scenes that's, that's running a lot of these, uh, service, these, these streaming platforms now reduce the barrier to entry. Um, <coughs> But, you know, so we're going to see a proliferation of metaverses pop up. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure that the metaverse platforms themselves may use similar underlying technology. I don't disagree with that in terms of the, the ability to stream, but the design of the world, if you will, the backplane, not the control plane, not the data plane, but the backplane will be owned by particular companies. Facebook will have its own, Apple will have its own, and they'll all compete with each other for subscription. And, and very quickly, they'll start charging for it because it's another form of entertainment. Well, there are content creator networks out there now some of them coming out of the NFT space, some coming from other sources that are like new social networks that are focused on particular areas of content creation um, that will start trying to monetize in ways that are based on the proprietary nature of that backplane. You know, it'll be faster or you know, self-animating or personalized in some way that your experience and my experience in the same metaverse will not be based on 
the recommendations made to us or our preferences, but how some AI determines that this is the most optimized or optimal experience that you or I should have. And that's going to be the very sticky wicket. Uh, I, I'm going to put on my skeptic hat on, on, on this. And so I, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen because invariably, it, like, <laughs> invariably, I, I find that content platforms that I don't like seem to thrive. So I, I, I'm, I'm not particularly <laughs> fond of Metaverse, so I, 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 it will probably happen. Having said that, <laughs> um, if we if we take YouTube as a precedent or, or video content distribution, we're probably going to see maybe three to five years of a, of a golden age where, where, where fresh content is prioritized. And then revenue generation takes takes uh, the front seat and it's going to turn into a dumpster fire. Ooh. Uh, I why would it turn it why would they stop prioritizing fresh content? Well, look 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 at YouTube. Like go to the YouTube front page and look at the recommendations that that, that you get. And tell me how much of that is content that's actually relevant to you. Because when I go, it's, it's garbage. They're, they're, the, the algorithms are prioritizing content that has a particular length. They're prioritizing mm. content with, with ads. They're prioritizing content that is clickbaity. So the, the quality is really low. Like you, you, you would need a personalized argument to sift through all that garbage and find the, the things that you actually like. Like the, you, you're getting bombarded with more and more content, yes, but the 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 percentage of it that is actually worthy, it, it's it's not rapid decline, and and it's so again just because. The platform providers are focusing on monetization and not on uh, on original content. So, so I want to take this a really interesting place because, right? We, you know, sort of behind the scenes, we're we're talking about content in virtual spaces, and I, and you know, I think we all are, have come from the same space where a virtual space is going to need content. <laughs> For it, it's going to need architectural content, but it's also going to need entertainment content and you know a reason to come. Um, besides interacting with with stunning, exciting personalities, um, and even those those people are going to need clothes and you know avatars and and all the all the, the intellectual property that has to be created. But what what you just highlighted to me is something we forget about in the intellectual property spaces today is how much algorithms influence what we see in those, in the spaces. Sure. Right. Well, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Rob, but no, please look at, you know, look at solutions like any word, right? This is in uh, data-driven copywriting. They're doing gangbuster business in allowing you, me, or anybody else to do copywriting for metaverse. Can we pre-program what we're going to say when we're there? What do you mean? Copywriting for metaverse? Yeah. Like, like so, so when I, so when, so basically my avatar becomes a chatbot. Pretty much. Oh, that's an interesting so there's a you, huge are you, are you business. thinking that 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 so I, I could like in a virtual trade show booth, the value of because you can't tell if there's a person behind there or not. If you actually had copywritten interactions from the vendor side, that's huge. That's a that's a value. And you might think you're interacting with a person. Right. Or you oh, I mean that's already being that's done. That's the worst of spam calls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at look at a lot of those like uh, help like uh, support page pop ups that you get like those, those chats. 
half the time it's it's chatbots. Like they're, they're they're just smart enough to 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 get you to um, provide information about the nature of your problem, and then they 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 connect you to sometimes a, a real life support person right. in, in the back end. I see those as valuable. I I think that there's there's mutual benefit to the the consumer and the provider in a in a well organized interaction like. Um, Yes, if if it's imp- if if it's implemented properly, there's definitely value to that. Um, I mean, sometimes it 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 becomes obvious as a chatbot, and and their answers just are are completely unusable. Um, so quality yeah. uh, varies a lot. Uh, but yes, it, I mean, th- there's always been uh, a value to to having like agent. Uh, driven AI interactions. Uh, even going further back, I mean, <laughs> look at Clippy. Like <laughs> it, 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 it was majorly panned, but it, it was useful in that it provided contextual information saying like, hey, I know you're trying to do this, but there's, a, but there's potentially a better way of doing it. Right. The UX side of it sucked but the agents out of it was actually pretty advanced. I agree. It was early NLP. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, imagine a year from now that you fly into a metaverse of sorts and the first person you interact with is the avatar or the 3D rendered version of a chatbot welcoming you to that metaverse and directing you, you're not going to be averse to that. But the next one that you meet is some, you know, sales bot from somebody who's selling, you know, clothing for your avatar at a discounted price, think flea market related. And Every other conversation that you have is a sales pitch. That kills the metaverse very quickly. But at the same time, you have no control over it. Because you're, you're, you have no idea inbox. who is behind that, that avatar. Actually, oh word. the one part that I think we are missing still, and, and which has been attempted in, in some way with, with vision spam filters is the client side content filtering like me having an agent that's by me for me entirely to filter the content i mean if you look at a lot of the futuristic sci-fi like neil stephenson um pf hamilton it is a recurring theme that yeah that that the publicly available content is just it's just a, a deluge of, of mostly garbage but but there are threads of useful things in there and i mean facing that like manually filtering the content is just not going to work so you you have to delegate that either to Either to a person that, that that does the content filtering for you, or or, or that that just an AI to do the filtering for you, or or direct or an AI directly. Um, it, it's a hard problem too, because I mean, it, it it's an arms race. And anytime yeah. there, there's a publicly available algorithm for 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 junk filtering, there, there's going to be some some person trying to work around it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I look at, I've looked at a lot of these companies like Cloud Factory is one, um, uh, Zonex, they're consulting AI services for like Avenja. There's a whole bunch of these companies. And I keep looking at them, looking for exactly what you're talking about, Klaus. How am I going to separate the wheat from the chaff in a metaverse where I don't want to spend time, how much can I automate to pick through what's valuable content and what's not valuable? 
I don't want to deal with a lot of people that are bots or a lot of people that are just trying to sell me something or advertising. I mean, advertising itself is going to be a whole new world in the metaverse, but irrespective of that specifically, how you would filter out the workarounds in NLP is kind of breaks my brain. Mm-hmm. Because it's too generic. And and what's the etiquette going to be, by the way, on that content? <laughs> are you are you copywriting your content for the metaverse? Do you I, I came across a company the other day that is actually an NFT, but for tweets. So you can claim ownership of your tweet. Oh dear. Is because your coming from your account is not enough? Because you said a whole bunch of interesting stuff, and unfortunately, I'm grabbing on the, the last sparkly object of it. Um, um, and this this is this is the core of the topic for today, right? It's it if you're looking at somebody's uh, yeah avatar. Um, I mean, that, that, it's it's their IP. They're they're renting it from somebody, or they have a a right to use. The the, the part of of claiming ownership of your tweet, uh, perhaps I I can provide a a use case for that. And that is, um, if your Twitter account is anonymized, so not directly linked to you, and you want to keep it that way, one way to claim ownership of a tweet is to have Again, the NFT, and then you have not have that linked to your identity, so yeah. that you you can say yes, I, I I claim this, but I'm not gonna tell you who I am. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm looking at a um, a company that's still in stealth that's trying to blockchain tweets for professionals. Because I don't know about you guys, but I get my tweets ripped off all the time. I mean, I love the fact that people retweet my tweets. That's great. But for people to suddenly come out with what might have been one of my more brilliant ideas and claim it as their own, that bothers me. um, Because that directly impacts my business. No, it's not pride of authorship. It's it's the fact that it could be written in a way to... Commercial theft. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if that was on a blockchain, yes, the attribution rights and and any ownership of it could be interesting. But for the metaverse, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to record your conversations with people, just not have, are are you going to take them to a private sector of the metaverse? Holy What's man. private? Facebook already listens in on on all of on through my phone. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the fact that they're going to listen in, parse, and semantically evaluate everything on their platform. I mean, it, yeah. And, and and there's also the, the the matter of like copyright laws. What is original sure. content? What is derivative? What is satire? Because there, there, there's different rules governing each of those different categories. So, I mean, what, what we're describing here keeps pushing me back to, as a as a business, and maybe even as an individual, I'm going to want to end up with my own metaverse room, my own metaverse equipment. Like I, I don't, you know, right now, I guess I'm I'm happy enough having a family call on Zoom. I don't feel like it's a particular um, risk to, for me to discuss things in Zoom or business calls in Zoom, like, you know, at, at some point, right? If, but if it was Facebook, I'd be more nervous. When it's Google Meet, I'm more nervous. When it's, you know, Microsoft Teams, I'm actually a little bit, you know, I'm not as nervous. I have a scale of, of where I'm worried. Hmm? <sighs> but it'd be the well, same thing. I... You could, go ahead. Sorry, I think I think what you're going to see emerge very quickly, and you're not the only one. I mean, I dropped Facebook completely a long time ago. 
I rarely, I mean, I still have the account, but I rarely ever use it unless it's, you know, something earth shattering from someone else. Um, but I find I am, I will ask people to switch to Zoom off of Teams and off of Google. Where I think the future is going to lie, to your point, Rob, about having your own server or your own metaverse is that's an extension of Discord. Oh, interesting. The dis I could see Discord them going platform. in that direction. Oh. See, I, mean, I was thinking I actually more just, Twitch, but okay. Okay, Twitch too, yeah. Um, but not being a gamer, I, I'm not all that conversant. But it was funny because it was like literally two days ago that I signed up for Discord. And I'm going like, okay, what do I do with this now? Oh, I have to create my own community. Okay, but at least I have some some sense of control because it's by invitation. But I think they're all going to go in that direction. I think also um, I've heard chatter about LinkedIn going in that direction because there's been so much, um, what's the word? Misrepresentation. I mean, it's always been a problem, but it's even worse now than it was before. Misrepresentation in what? Well, people screen scrape other people's profiles and become uh, them. I, you know, I've, I've heard of a similar thing on a hiring, by the way, where, you know, you can fake through a Zoom interview and have somebody else be the, be the person doing the interview and you show up and you're not you know, the person who applied or interviewed is not the person who gets the job or takes the job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so you're, you're actually going to a place that I had thought about earlier, which is um, the lack of strong identity in, you know, we're, we're, we're using internet. So, so much for commerce and life service metaverse is going to be even more that way. Are we going to, finally get to a point where we have to have verifiable identity on the internet? And would that help? I think so. I mean, I have a friend uh, called Alex Todd, who's here in Toronto, who started a blockchain company called Reliably Me. And he's mm. uh, interested in the behavioral change because we had this conversation like three years ago, he and I, um, about it and before he started the company. And I don't know how well it's going to fare going forward because his whole premise is you shouldn't be ranked as, as a valuable individual or a, an individual of value based on a credit score. And there's too many people who are denied, you know, access to funds of any, any sort uh, just because they have a bad credit score or because they can't get a credit score like younger people. And uh, so he was, he invented, he kind of came up with a way to show that people are reliable without it being tied to a monetary issue. Oh, okay. Right. Are they trustworthy? Are they reliable? Do they show up on time? Can you count on them? That sort of thing. And he's using it more in an educational paradigm at this point, but it is a for-profit startup. So at some point he's going to have to make that jump into the real world. But it, it's a very interesting concept because that notion of how do you verify your identity on the net without it being tied to a bid ID or some number or some you know, other mechanism that we would normally use from a tech point of view in a non-technical way. Mm -hmm. This is also something that is actively being researched in uh, KYC and KYB. Um, yeah. But like, again, like the previous company I, I, I worked with, uh, Polymath, like the, their, their blockchain solution is, again, like securities trades, um, but anonymized. So it's, so that there has to be a way to, to say, yes, I'm, I'm good for, for what I'm, I'm trading here. Uh, so th they have a platform in place for that where you can have anonymous attestation for, for what you 
um, for, for the securities that you're offering or, or, or buying. Um, th there's been also been work done again, uh, again with anonymized uh, or anonymization of PII to say to say, uh, and, and who was it? Uh, Intel has a platform for this or or, or yeah. like a, a white paper for this, where you can say, okay, um, me as a, as a vendor, I need to know these pieces of information from my customers. Let's say whether they have the uh, sufficient credit or, or su basically sufficient funds for this, whether they have some sort of, uh, whether let's say that they're, that they're, they're, they are of consenting age, things like that. Uh, but you don't need to know their name. You don't need to know their credit score and, and things like that. So, uh, so there are protocols that have been designed for brokering that kind of information. But the question is, is it going to be, is it something that will be widely accepted? Because I think that's the other issue is everybody can focus on a protocol or create their own or whatever. Are you going to end up having this pre-OAuth kind of capability, you know, set of uh, instantiations like on this metaverse, I, I am who I claim to be based on this protocol, but it's not transferable to the other metaverse. Because that requalification re is going to be insane. People well, the, don't do it. Huh. No, the, the, you, you, the, the requalification would be done based on a, like, you know, on a KYC provider. The, I think the bigger question is, it's not so much whether it can be done on, or whether there's user demand from it, but whether there is going to be industry pushback on it. Because sure. I cannot see Equifax or TransUnion lying down and letting this happen. They've cornered the market uh, and they're going to be fighting tooth and nail to, to basically prevent any of these kind of improvements from happening because why would they? They'd be risking their own business. I, I don't disagree with you at all. Um, to that end, though, I think it's not going to be Equifax and TransUnion. It's going to be the credit card companies because the more companies, I mean, you know, uh, Don Hinchcliffe put out a tweet earlier today saying 23% of uh, companies expect to be able to receive crypto as payment by 2024. If that's true, and we all go to, let's say, or many of us go to uh, some sort of wallet capability and start paying through crypto, the credit card companies have already taken a hit with it. It's not to say they're going away anytime soon, but they're they're the ones that are going to be more inclined to resist an internet identity kind of capability than I think Equifax or TransUnion, because the bulk of their money comes from the credit card companies. Oh, interesting. I I, I only partially agree to that. Um, I think the, okay. the, the credit card companies are initially going to lobby against it, but only because I expect them to build a solution internally first. And then once they, 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 they've built the solution, they're, they're, they're going to lobby for the law to benefit them exclusively as opposed to startup companies. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Like they're wow. going that, to establish that, that, themselves. That, that, that themselves is a place where past behavior is an indication of future results. Yeah, they're they're going to establish themselves first to to yeah. so that they, they they can easily drown out the competition, and and then they're 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 going to say, oh yeah, we've always been in favor of this, and and whitewash their history on on it. It it it's. It's the profitable way of doing it. Uh, so I, 
Does that I, does that change if you're not if the transactions aren't in fiat currency? I mean, they, they, they will still be there will still be brokers for for the transactions. I mean, that's ultimately what what they are. Their payment processors that they like it, it, right now. Uh, the the car transactions are tied to a particular fiat, but you can pay. You can use your U.S. credit cards to pay, to pay for goods in in Canadian currency. There's gonna be a fee for converting from one fiat to another. Mm-hmm. So why not do the same for crypto? Like charge our well, fee. Well, they are. Yeah. I mean, Visa is already doing it. I just put the link in the chat. There you go. Right. But it's really, but but think about it. How much is Visa going to ding you for paying in crypto or unlocking, you know, like to their point, unlocking the opportunity? Is it just a buy and sell of crypto or for merchants that are accepting oh. crypto and wallets that are tied to it? How is that going to affect your Equifax or your TransUnion? Well, that... I'm sure they have a formula for it. Oh, I, I would I, I would guess that it would involve the baseline of what a user could do with a, with like a digital wallet and, and exchanges. Uh, and then maybe add a convenience fee on top of it. Because I mean mm-hmm. you and I, we, we might we might be comfortable using digital wallets, but right. but every soccer mom out there probably isn't. And they're going to be continue using their credit card because it's a single thing that they can have in their wallet and say like, okay, I'll pay with this. Even if it means like a 2% fee on top of what they could do otherwise, because it's convenient. Hmm. Well, I, but I, I think on the other side of it, it's a, it's a potentially a benefit to the diversity of crypto that we have. Because what, yeah, but what then you're, it's- you're you're, you don't have to have a wallet of Bitcoin or Ethereum to do transaction with somebody who wants to take Doge as, as a transaction, right? What you now have is you can say, okay, just like, I mean, sort of like just with credit cards, I don't worry about um, what currency the vendor wants to be paid in. I pay with my credit card. It's handled by the credit card company. You know, paying with Doge should be no. You know, if somebody wants to be paid Doge, then 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 that becomes their relationship with the vendor, not with the credit card company, not mine. It seems like that should well, make cryptos even more accessible. Well, I mean, atomic swaps would would even would make that even more accessible because then you wouldn't need a third party to do the transfer for you. But even without atomic swaps, um, you could do it with an exchange right now. Like if you have Bitcoin and the vendor only accepts Doge, uh, then I mean you can't you can't go to exchange uh, like I don't know uh, Coinbase. Sure. Um, send them some of your Bitcoin. Have them internally transfer the, uh, like exchange that for Doge, and then use that to pay. But I okay, I can, but I mean, but wait a second. The volatility. That the, the the big problem, however is that in many jurisdictions, Canada inclusive, those transactions are taxable because they're they're not fiat, they're treated as essentially securities. Right. And so, and, and, and add to this, remember that the whole premise behind Bitcoin and all other stable coins or level one networks is decentralization with no central authority getting in the middle. So how Visa is going to pull this off is going to be a very interesting sort of notion. But irrespective of of Visa itself, the idea that you're going to get to your point, Rob, about worrying about you don't care what what the settlement is in. You just use the same credit card. You have, I would say, a fairly significant number of people like me, (laughs) excuse me, (coughs) who have credit cards in different currencies to avoid that happening. Because if you look at the transaction cost 
and the exchange costs that you're getting dinged every time you pay something outside of the US dollar, you're getting gouged. So, for example, when I travel to the States, I use U.S. dollar credit cards only. I have a U.S. phone only. Uh, if I was in Mexico, I have a card in pesos. I have one in yuan. I have one in U.S. dollars, Canadian dollars, et cetera. And I only use the card for the currency because I figured out after years and years of traveling that I was paying like twice whatever bank rate was. Right. That's right. And if you're doing sufficient volume, then that makes a ton of sense. If well, if I have to, yeah. I mean, if I go across the border, I'm going for a week, 10 days, and I'm flying in between cities. I mean, my monthly, when I worked for Gartner, my monthly travel expenses were like upwards of 50 grand. Just because I was doing that amount of travel. And coming into the U.S., you're just border, you know, just like landing fee costs and whatever over the Canadian US border is an astronomical amount of money. So it, it would make more sense for me to go, go across the border once and then city hop between jurisdictions, do everything I needed to do over a five or 10 day period, and then fly back. The ones that were the worst was when I was back to back trips to California. Literally fly six hours, do my thing, fly back six hours, be home for a day and a half and do it all over again. That was insanity. So I sort of started getting wise to these things. And I have a feeling the same thing is going to happen with crypto. And you brought up a very interesting point. The volatilities of the currencies and the type of transactions that you're doing, you know, what happens if the currency drops? 10% overnight. And you don't have enough in your hot wallet to pay it. You're now going to have to go buy crypto. You know, you might be buying at a low or you might have to buy at a high. You, It's going to become very complicated. <laughs> All right. The top of the hour, and I love where we got with this, but I do, I want to, I want to put a bow on it and I know we'll come back to this because I, I think what we're, what we're what you're describing here in 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 historical transactions is actually the same thing that we're we're anticipating happening in metaverse transactions where you're hopping from you know effectively country to country fiat currency to it's not fiat currency but currency to currency throughout the system right your your experience here is essentially indicative of what a web three experience would be and equally can, you know, expensive or confusing or um, jurisdictional. Yeah, and, it is because, and, so, and imagine those countries that are banning crypto. Right. I mean, what happens to then? Regulate this. Well, then in that case, right. But it's just like China with the great firewall or Russia where people yeah. are sneaking out through VPNs or um, try, try to control, it's going to be very hard to control. The thing I, I found fascinating with this is that we, we went from intellectual property um, at, the core, you know, at the core of this, but you, you talk about intellectual property, you get back into payments and payments into crypto um, and how intermixed, you know, not surprisingly, but, but how intermixed these conversations have been, and and this has been happening because I think we're having the right conversations <laughs> more and more. Where we were talking about um, uh, complexity, and it turned into risk, and this time we're talking about intellectual property and assets, and it turns into crypto and payments. Um, the, and, and, and this context is all boils down to trust, and that's a nice. Summary. You're right, and risk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oh, that's fascinating. All right. I need to figure out how to how to skewer those topics in a in a straightforward way as we go forward. But for now, we've got, we're going back to majors and minors next week. API design. Um oh, and then and then uh this one was from last week. The WTF my MI my WTF my MFA is MIA. 
the conversation. Uh, all right. A lot of good topics coming up. Excellent. Thank you all. It'll be Talk fun. It always fun. is. Yeah. Always. Cheers. Always. Cheers. Have a good one. Wow. A really fascinating conversation where we dig into this intersection between all of the different technology concepts. And it's fascinating how they keep coming back to core ideas, regulation, payment, risk, control, identity, uh, getting those things right or accepting what we have is the core to what we're building for cloud 2030. Uh, and, we want to hear your thoughts on these topics. These are big topics and more voices adds to the conversation. So please join us at the 2030.cloud. Come in, look at the agenda, see what you want to talk about and bring in your voice. Um, and we also spend the first 15 minutes of the call. They don't usually make it to the podcast, catching up, seeing, checking in and seeing how each other are doing. So the whole end to end experience really uh, in person adds a lot to it. And I hope you will choose to join us. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.